Chapter One, Part One of The Ordeal of Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ordeal of Mark Twain by Van Wyck Brooks. Chapter One Introductory Mark Twain's Despair part one quote, what a man sees in the human race is merely himself in the deep and honest privacy of his own heart byron despised the race because he despised himself i feel as byron did and for the same reason End quote. marginal note in one of mark twain's books to those who are interested in american life and letters there has been no question of greater significance during the last few years than the pessimism of mark twain during the last few years i say for his own friends and contemporaries were rather inclined to make light of his oft-expressed belief that man is the meanest of the animals and life a tragic mistake for some time before his death mark twain had appeared before the public in the role less of a laughing philosopher than that of a somewhat gloomy prophet of modern civilization but he was old and he had suffered many misfortunes and the progress of society is not a matter for anyone to be very jubilant about to be gloomy about the world is a sort of prerogative of those who have lived long and thought much the public that had grown old with him could hardly therefore accept at its face value a point of view that seemed to be contradicted by so many of the facts of mark twain's life and character mr howells who knew him intimately for forty years spoke only with an affectionate derision of his pose regarding the damned human race and we know the opinion of his loyal biographer mr Payne, that he was not a pessimist in his heart but only by premeditation these views were apparently borne out by his own testimony my temperament he wrote shortly after the death of his daughter jean has never allowed my spirits to remain depressed long at a time that he remained active and buoyant to the end was in fact for his associates sufficient evidence that his philosophical despair was only an anomaly which had no organic part in the structure of his life was it not natural that they should feel thus about him those contemporaries of his so few of whom had seen his later writings and all the tell-tale private memoranda which mr Payne has lately given to the world what a charmed life was mark twain's after all to be able to hold an immense nation in the hollow of one's hand to be able to pour out into millions of sympathetic ears with calm confidence as into the ears of a faithful friend all the private griefs and intimate humors of a lifetime to be called the king by those one loves to be so much more than a king in reality that every attack of gout one has is good for a column in the newspapers and every phrase one utters girdles the world in twenty minutes 
to be addressed as the messiah of a genuine gladness and joy to the millions of three continents what more could tom sawyer at least have wished than that and mark twain's fame was not merely one of sentiment if the public heart was moved by everything that concerned him an illness in his household a new campaign against political corruption a change of residence and he was deluged with letters extolling him whatever he did or said if he won the world's pity when he got into debt and the world's praise when he got out of it he was no sort of nine days wonder his country had made him its general spokesman he was quite within his rights in appointing himself as he said ambassador at large of the united states of america since the day half a century back when all official washington from the cabinet down had laughed over the innocents abroad and offered him his choice of a dozen public offices to the day when the newspapers were freely proposing that he ought to have the thanks of the nation and even suggested his name for the presidency when in his person the speaker of the house for the first time in american history gave up his private chamber to a lobbyist and private cars were placed at his disposal whenever he took a journey and his baggage went round the world with consular dispensations and his opinion was asked on every subject by everybody he had been indeed a sort of incarnation of the character and quality of modern america everywhere he moved says mr paine a world revolved about him in london in vienna his apartments were a court and traffic rules were modified to let him pass in the street a charmed life surely when we consider in addition to this public acclaim the tidal waves of wealth that flowed in upon him again and again the intense happiness of his family relations and the splendid recognition of those fellow members of his craft whose word to him was final kipling who loved to think of the great and godlike clemens and brander matthews who freely compared him with the greatest writers of history and bernard shaw who announced that america had produced just two geniuses edgar allan poe and mark twain finally there was mr howells the recognized critical court of last resort in this country as he called him did not mr howells like posterity itself whisper in his ear your foundations are struck so deep that you will catch the sunshine of immortal years and bask in the same light as cervantes and shakespeare the spectators of this drama could hardly have been expected to take the pessimism of mark twain seriously and all the more because he totally refuted the old and popular notion that humorists are always melancholy i have already quoted the remark he made about his temperament in one of the darkest moments of his life four months before his own death it is borne out by all the evidence of all his years he was certainly not one of those radiant sunny sky-blue natures those june-like natures that sing out their full joy the day long under a cloudless heaven far from that 
he was an august nature given to sudden storms and thunder his atmosphere was charged with electricity but the storm clouds passed as swiftly as they gathered and the warm bright mellow mood invariably returned what a child he was says mr Payne, always to the very end he was indeed a child in the buoyancy of his spirits Quote, people who always feel jolly no matter where they are or what happens to them who have the organ of hope preposterously developed who are endowed with an uncongealable sanguine temperament he writes referring to himself in eighteen sixty one if there is he adds thirteen years later one individual creature on all this footstool who is more thoroughly and uniformly and unceasingly happy than i am i defy the world to produce him and prove him End quote. and it seems always to have been so whether he is reveling in his triumphs on the platform or indulging his rainbow-hued impulses on paper we see him again and again as mr Payne saw him in washington in nineteen o six when he was expounding the gospel of copyright to the members of congress assembled happy and wonderfully excited can it surprise us then to find him in his seventy-fifth year adding to the note about his daughter's death quote, shall i ever be cheerful again happy again yes and soon for i know my temperament End quote. and his physical health was just what one might expect from this from his immense vitality he was subject to bronchial colds and he had intermittent attacks of rheumatism in later years otherwise his health appears to have been as perfect as his energy was inexhaustible i have been sick abed several days for the first time in twenty-one years he writes in eighteen seventy five from all one gathers he might have made the same statement twenty-one thirty-one years later read his letters at fifty at sixty at seventy during that extraordinary period well within the memory of people who are still young when he had solved his financial difficulties by going into bankruptcy and went about as mr Payne says like a debutante in her first season the days when people called him the belle of new york by half-past four he writes to his wife i had danced all those people down and yet was not tired merely breathless i was in bed at five and asleep in ten minutes up at nine and presently at work on this letter to you and again the next year his sixtieth year when he had been playing billiards with h h rogers until rogers looked at him helplessly and asked don't you ever get tired Quote, i was able to say that i had forgotten what that feeling was like don't you remember how almost impossible it was for me to tire myself at the villa well it is just so in new york i go to bed unfatigued at three i get up fresh and fine six hours later i believe i have taken only one daylight nap since i have been here End quote. finally let us take the testimony of mr Payne, 
who was with him day in day out during the last five years of his life when even at seventy-four he was still playing billiards nine hours a day and ten or twelve on sunday in no other human being have i ever seen such physical endurance i was comparatively a young man and by no means an invalid but many a time far in the night when i was ready to drop with exhaustion he was still as fresh and buoyant and eager for the game as at the moment of beginning he smoked and smoked continually and followed the endless track around the billiard table with the light step of youth at three or four o'clock in the morning he would urge just one more game and would taunt me for my weariness i can truthfully testify that never until the last year of his life did he willingly lay down the billiard cue or show the least suggestion of fatigue now this was the mark twain his contemporaries his intimates had ever in their eyes this darling of all the gods no wonder they were inclined to take his view of the damned human race as rather a whimsical pose they would undoubtedly have continued to take it so even if they had known generally known that he had a way of referring in private to god's most elegant invention as not only damned but also mangy he was irritable but literary men are always supposed to be that he was old and old people are often afflicted with doubts about the progress and welfare of mankind he had a warm and tender heart an abounding scorn of humbug one did not have to go beyond these facts to explain his contempt for the blessings of civilization trust with its stock in trade glass beads and theology and maxim guns and hymn books and trade gin and torches of progress and enlightenment all his closest friends were accustomed to little notes like this quote, i have been reading the morning paper i do it every morning well knowing that i shall find in it the usual depravities and basenesses and hypocrisies and cruelties that make up civilization and cause me to put in the rest of the day pleading for the damnation of the human race End quote. might not any sensitive man young or old have written that even now with all the perspective of mark twain's writings which only a succeeding generation can really have it might be possible to explain in this objective way the steady progress toward a pessimistic cynicism which mr paine at least has noted in his work the change in tone between the poetry of the first half of life on the mississippi and the dull notation of the latter half between the exuberance of a tramp abroad and the drab and weary journalism of following the equator with those corroding aphorisms of puddinhead wilson's new calendar that constant running refrain of weariness exasperation and misery along the tops of the chapters as if he wanted to get even with the reader for taking his text at its face value all this might be attributed as mr paine attributes it to the burdens of debt and family sorrow 
if he was always manifesting in word and deed his deep belief that life is inevitably a process of deterioration well did not james whitcomb riley do the same thing was it not is it not a popular american dogma that the baddest children are better than the goodest men a race of people who feel this way could not have thought there was anything amiss with a humorist who wrote maxims like these if you pick up a starving dog and make him prosperous he will not bite you this is the principal difference between a dog and a man it takes your enemy and your friend working together to hurt you to the heart the one to slander you and the other to get the news to you they could hardly have been surprised at the bitter yes even the vindictive mockery of the man that corrupted hadleyburg at mark twain's definition of man as a mere coffee mill which is permitted neither to supply the coffee nor turn the crank at his recurring plan to exterminate the human race by withdrawing the oxygen from the air for a period of two minutes has not the american public with its invincible habit of turning hell's backyard into a playground gone so far even as to discount the mysterious stranger that fearful picture of life as a rigmarole of cruel nonsense a nightmare of satanic unrealities with its frank assertion that slavery hypocrisy and cowardice are the eternal destiny of man professor stuart p sherman who likes to defend the views of thirty years ago and sometimes seems to forget that all traditions are not of equal validity says of this book that it lets one into a temperament and character of more gravity complexity and interest than the surfaces indicated but having made this discovery for he is openly surprised professor sherman merely reveals in his new and unexpected mark twain the mark twain most people had known before Quote, what mark twain hated was the brutal power resident in monarchies aristocracies tribal religions and minorities bent on mischief and making a bludgeon of the malleable many and after all he says the wicked world visited by the mysterious stranger is sixteenth-century austria not these states End quote. but is it isn't the village of esselberg in reality hannibal missouri all over again and are not the boys through whose eyes the story is told simply reincarnations of huck finn and tom sawyer those characters which as we know from a hundred evidences haunted mark twain's mind all his life long they are at any rate mark twain's boys and whoever compares their moral attitude with that of the boys of mark twain's prime will see how deeply the iron had entered into his soul Quote, we boys wanted to warn them margaret and ursula against the danger that was gathering about them but we backed down when it came to the pinch being afraid we found that we were not manly enough nor brave enough to do a generous action when there was a chance that it could get us into trouble 
End quote. What, is this Mark Twain speaking, the creator of Huck and Tom, who gladly broke every law of the tribe to protect and rescue Nigger Jim? Mark Twain's boys, not manly enough nor brave enough to do a generous action when there was a chance that it could get them into trouble? Can we, in the light of this, continue to say that Mark Twain's pessimism was due to anything so external as the hatred of tyranny, and a sixteenth-century Austrian tyranny at that? Is it not perfectly plain that that deep contempt for man, the coffee mill, a contempt that has spread now even to the boy nature of which Mark Twain had been the lifelong hierophant, must have had some far more personal root, must have sprung from some far more intimate chagrin. One goes back to the long series of Puddin'head maxims, not the bitter ones now, but those desperate notes that seem to bear no relation to the life even of a sardonic humorist. Pity is for the living, envy is for the dead. All say, how hard it is that we have to die a strange complaint to come from the mouths of people who have had to live each person is born to one possession which outvalues all his others his last breath and that paragraph about the death of his daughter so utterly inconsistent with the temperament he ascribes to himself quote, my life is a bitterness but I am content, for she has been enriched with the most precious of all gifts, the gift that makes all other gifts mean and poor, death. I have never wanted any released friend of mine restored to life since I reached manhood. I felt in this way when Susie passed away, and later my wife, and later Mr. Rogers. End quote. Two or three constructions to one who knows Mark Twain, might be put upon that. But at least one of them is that, not to the writer's apprehension, but in the writer's experience, life has been, in some special way, a vain affliction. Can we, then, accept any of the usual explanations of Mark Twain's pessimism? Can we attribute it, with Mr. Payne, to the burdens of debt under which he labored now and again, to the recurring illnesses, the death of those he loved? No, for these things would have modified his temperament, not his point of view. They would have saddened him, checked his vitality, given birth perhaps to a certain habit of brooding, and this they did not do. We have, in addition to his own testimony, the word of Mr. Payne, quote, More than anyone I ever knew, he lived in the present. End quote. Of the misfortunes of life, he had neither more nor less than other men, and they affected him neither more nor less. To say anything else would be to contradict the whole record of his personality. No, it was some deep malady of the soul that afflicted Mark Twain, a malady common to many Americans, perhaps if we are to judge from that excessive interest in therapeutics which he shared with so many millions of his fellow countrymen that is an aspect of mark twain's later history which has received too little attention 
quote, whether it was copyright legislation the latest invention or a new empiric practice says mr paine to approach this subject on its broadest side he rarely failed to have a burning interest in some anodyne that would provide physical or mental easement for his species and here again the general leads to the particular he had says mr howells a tender heart for the whole generation of empirics as well as the newer sorts of scienticians mr howells tells how on the advice of some sage he and all his family gave up their spectacles for a time and came near losing their eyesight thanks to the miracle that had been worked in their behalf but that was the least of his divagations there was that momentary rage for the art of predicating correlation at professor loisette's school of memory there was dr kelgren's osteopathic method that possessed his mind during the year nineteen hundred he wrote long articles about it bombarding his friends with letters of appreciation and recommendation of the new cure-all indeed says mr paine he gave most of his thought to it there was plasmon that panacea for all human ills which osteopathy could not reach there was christian science to which in spite of his attacks on mrs eddy and the somewhat equivocal book he wrote on the subject he was as mr paine says and as he frequently averred himself one of the earliest converts who never lost faith in its power and lastly there was the eclectic therapeutic doctrine which he himself put together piecemeal from all the others to the final riddance of materia medica we have seen what mark twain's apparent health was can we say that this therapeutic obsession was due to the illnesses of his family which were indeed unending no doubt those illnesses provided a constant stimulus to the obsession the eclectic therapeutic doctrine for instance did quite definitely rise up out of the midst of them but it is plain that there had to be an element of soul cure in these various healings for mark twain to be interested in them that what interested him in them was the soul cure the mind cure can he say too much in praise of christian science for its healing of the spirit its gifts of buoyant spirits comfort of mind and freedom from care in fact unless i am mistaken his interest in mental healing began at a time when he and his family alike were free from illness it is in eighteen eighty six when mark twain was at the very summit of his fame when he was the most successful publisher in the world when he was at work on his most ambitious book when he was frightened as he said at the proportions of his prosperity when his household was aglow with happiness and well-being that his daughter susie notes in her diary papa has been very much interested of late in the mind cure theory it might be added that he was about at the age when according to his famous aphorism a man who does not become a pessimist knows too little about life in fact 
the more one scans the later pages of mark twain's history the more one is forced to the conclusion that there was something gravely amiss with his inner life there was that frequently noted fear of solitude that dread of being alone with himself which made him for example beg for just one more game of billiards at four o'clock in the morning there were those daily self-chidings that led him to slay his own conscience in one of the most ferocious of his humorous tales that conscience of his what was it why do so many of his jokes turn upon an affectation let us say of moral cowardice in himself how does it happen that when he reads romola the only thing that hits him with force is tito's compromise with his conscience why those continual fits of remorse those fantastic self-accusations in which he charged himself we are told with having filled mrs clemens life with privations in which he made himself responsible first for the death of his younger brother and later for that of his daughter susie writing to his wife according to mr payne that he was wholly and solely responsible for the tragedy detailing step by step with fearful reality his mistakes and weaknesses which had led to their downfall the separation from susie and this final incredible disaster was there any reason why humorously or otherwise he should have spoken of himself as a liar why he should have said in reply to his own idea of writing a book about tom sawyer's afterlife quote, if i went on now and took him into manhood he would just lie like all the one-horse men in literature and the reader would conceive a hearty contempt for him End quote. that morbid feeling of having lived in sin which made him come to think of literature as primarily perhaps the confession of sins was there anything in the moral point of view of his generation to justify it in this greatly loved writer this honorable man of business this zealous reformer this loyal friend Quote, be weak be water be characterless be cheaply persuadable End quote. was he said the first command the deity ever issued to a human being on this planet the only command adam would never be able to disobey and he noted on the margin of one of his books quote, what a man sees in the human race is merely himself in the deep and honest privacy of his own heart byron despised the race because he despised himself i feel as byron did and for the same reason End quote. End of chapter one part one recording by lucretia b